Well, as you can tell with the decorations and the music, Christmas is here. Praise the Lord. All God's people said, amen, right? Doesn't it look beautiful in here? Did you even know? Yes. Thank you. This is uh, the vision of Ethan Bolvey and his wife. They came and put this together. I didn't even, we didn't know that our screen could do this, but it does. And it just adds a lot to it. And I just am uh, thankful for the work. It just freshens up the season and it gets us ready. Um, Christmas is always a good time to close out the year, any year. But this year particularly, doesn't it feel like we just need Christmas right now? Um, We can always tell that Christmas is near up in the high country because of all the little trees on top of the cars. You can maybe count those on your way and it's fun to see all of that. But we've been seeing trees on cars since like almost October. (laughs) I think people are ready to celebrate Christmas. Um, My wife is firmly in the camp of people. There are two types of people, but she's firmly in the camp that you don't dare talk about Christmas until after Thanksgiving. Anybody else like that? My wife is very much like that. Even she said around early November, you know, I think I could go ahead and get a tree up. This has been a tough year. And I'm like, the world really is about to end (laughs) to hear her say that. (laughs) We need Christmas right now. So it's a good thing that we can celebrate Advent. Praise the Lord. Uh, I hope you've also noticed that we're focusing this morning on adoption as well. Advent and adoption. November is National Adoption Month, and so we wanted to shine a light on this really important ministry uh, of our church. Now, that seems like a lot to accomplish, and as we thought about this service, is that, is that too much, you know, thinking about Christmas, singing Christmas songs, but also thinking about adoption? Is it, is it confusing messages? Um, I actually want to make the argument this morning that they belong together. They actually go quite well together. You can't really tell the Christmas story without telling a story about adoption. And so this morning, I want to retell the Christmas story, look at it again to prepare our hearts for Advent, but also to consider what the Lord might have us do as a church considering adoption. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter one. We're gonna start there, but we're also gonna be in Luke two and variety of other texts in the New Testament this morning. But if you wanna open up, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter one. I wanna think about what God asked Joseph and Mary to do on the first Christmas. My main goal is to consider how Jesus came and why he chose the path that he did. As the son of God, I suppose Jesus could have come in a variety of different ways. He could have chosen a a more convenient path that really didn't have an impact on anybody. I suppose he could have dropped in through a chimney in the middle of the night while everyone was sleeping and oh, Merry Christmas, here he he is. (laughs) But he didn't, he didn't come that way. He chose a more inconvenient route. In fact, uh, as I considered it this week, it seems like he chose perhaps the most inconvenient path possible for Mary and for Joseph. He, he crashed into their lives. He shook up their plans and their dreams and he exposed them to great danger. Um, perhaps we don't think about this aspect of Christmas. We typically think of the gift of Christmas and the son of God offering himself and that's appropriate. That's the centerpiece of Christmas. And yet it came at a great cost to Mary and Joseph. I want us to consider this perspective today because as I will argue later on in the sermon that what Jesus asked of Joseph and Mary, the way that he entered their lives is similar to how he enters our lives. It's a tremendous gift, but it's not convenient comes at a great cost. And so this morning I wanna title the message, The Inconvenience of Christmas. And I wanna look at two ways specifically that Jesus shook up the plans of this sweet couple living in the north and how he made it inconvenient for them. So two points that I wanna consider. First, Jesus sent 
shame on this couple. He brought them into shame. And second, Jesus exposed them to danger. How's that for a Christmas message? (laughs) Merry Christmas, everyone. So let's look at these two uh, points this, this morning. First, Jesus brought shame on this couple. What a harsh sentence. I pay uh, a lot of attention to the outline headings because it's intentionally a sticky point of the message. You might forget a lot of what I say, but hopefully you'll remember some of the outline headings as you leave this place. And I thought, do I really want people leaving here thinking Jesus brought shame on people? Because didn't Jesus come to take away shame? It's true. Um, Jesus on the cross came to take away their shame. But there's a deep irony because... When you look at the Christmas story, baby Jesus actually brought shame on Mary and Joseph. He came into our world through the form of a teenage pregnancy. Think about what that meant for Mary when she found that she was pregnant with the Son of God. God could have softened the blow, the personal impact this had on her by choosing a different route, but he didn't. He chose to come this way. Let's look at the story. Matthew chapter one, we just sang the story, but let's read it now. Verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. It's what we're considering. How did it happen? When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The Christmas story begins with a birth announcement. We know this. This should have, however, been very good news for Joseph and Mary. Think about birth announcements. These are happy occasions, aren't they? Babies bring people together. It's almost like they have a magnetic effect on people. When a close friend has a baby, you do whatever you can to make plans to visit that friend so you can see the baby as quick as you can. Grandmothers have this instinct on steroids. Whenever your grandbaby is born, we've seen it happen. Whenever your grandbaby is born, you will go through the middle of the night in a blizzard to be with that baby. (laughs) It just is this pull that God designed in our hearts. When when babies come, we wanna be there. We wanna see it. We wanna celebrate. It's a joyful occasion, right? But in this highly religious society as it was in the first century, when a baby comes before a baby should come, before marriage It's almost like the exact opposite dynamic happens. Instead of magnetizing, it's like the magnet is flipped upside down and it almost keeps people away. Instead of getting smiles as you push the baby down the sidewalks, you get sneers. It isolates you. It puts you in a different category altogether. It's human nature. People do this. This is what God called Mary to do. When Jesus came into her life, people ran. This is mind-boggling, isn't it? Because when we think about Christmas, what do we think about? We think about 
family. <laughs> For most Americans, this is the meaning of Christmas. It's not a meaning of Christmas. It's not a nice bonus. It is the meaning of Christmas. Christmas equals family. Without this sentiment, the Hallmark Channel would not exist. We like to tell stories about family gathering. This is what it's all about. But the great irony in the Bible is that when Jesus came on the first Christmas, he didn't surround Mary with a loving and warm family. He isolated her. Well, how do we know that? It's very clearly in the text, but we have to look for a few clues to find out that Joseph and Mary were indeed isolated. The first clue is the most obvious. We just read the text. What did Joseph do when he found out that she was pregnant? He made plans to leave. Joseph, perhaps being the closest to her, the one with the most reasons, he left. He was making plans. He, he wasn't gonna stick around. He didn't buy her story. Can you imagine that conversation? Joseph, you need to sit down. I gotta tell you something. <laughs> I'm having a baby, but it's not what you think. It's from the son of God. Like, he didn't buy it. W would you buy that story? Honestly, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Would you buy that story? He didn't. And so he made plans to quietly divorce her. He was at least being considerate that he wasn't gonna publicly shame her. So he was just gonna get out the back door. Now we know that Joseph eventually stayed because an angel of the Lord visited him. And it's actually, I discovered this week that it's a very important point that Joseph did stay. It was very important for Jesus to go through Joseph's line. Luke and Matthew both traced the lineage of Jesus through Joseph, which meant that Joseph needed to legally adopt this child. And so he actually did that. At the end of the text that we just read, Matthew 1, 25, he named the child. He gave a name to Jesus, signifying that he legally adopted and would legally accept all the responsibility for this child. And so that's why Joseph got a birth announcement from an angel as well. But as far as we can tell, nobody else in the little tiny town of Nazareth up in the north got a birth announcement. That would have been nice for this couple, wouldn't it? Like Gabriel is already in town. You've seen Mary, you've seen Joseph. And before you get back up to heaven, why don't you just call a meeting, get everybody on out and just say, hey, listen, guys, this is a big story. It's an incredible thing. Mary is having the son of God. I want you to support her. She's gonna need as much support as she can get right now. But he didn't do that. Which meant the people in the town, in this tiny little town where gossip travels fast, they were free to draw their own conclusions. And they did. <laughs> they did. Well, how do, you, how do you know that they did? There's evidence that Joseph and Mary had a, a smeared reputation their entire lives. There's a really unique uh, passage in, in the uh, Gospel of John, chapter 8. When Jesus is a full-grown man, He's down in Jerusalem. And John 8 describes one of the most aggressive confrontations that Jesus has with the, with the religious rulers. He's challenging them. They think, oh, we're safe. It's a, it's a complex argument. It goes back and forth. But essentially, they're making the point, we're safe because we're children of Abraham. God will love us anyway. And Jesus goes, oh, you think you're children of Abraham, but you're not children of Abraham. Your works prove that you have a different father. And you know who that father is? The devil. How do you think that went over with the religious elite down in Jerusalem? <sighs> what did you just say? You called us a children, child of the devil? You of all people? The gloves came off. And in that moment, they did what we often do when we don't have a good argument. We just throw mud. We're just going to make it personal and dirty and nasty. They go, oh, you are the one that's going to call us out? You who were born of sexual immorality? You illegitimate child, you're gonna call us? John 8, 41. 
If this rumor was alive and well 30 years later, all the way down in Jerusalem, what do you think Mary's experience was when she was pregnant? Luke's gospel gives us two more clues about the isolation that Joseph and Mary face. We've been looking at Matthew, looking at John. Luke introduces us to this theme as well. Now, you may remember that when Luke begins to tell the Christmas narrative, it's a really interesting narrative. He doesn't start with the birth announcement of Jesus. He starts with the birth announcement of John, Jesus's cousin. You may remember that Mary's relative, Elizabeth, had been barren her entire life. She had faced social isolation and exclusion, but God blessed her with a son late in life, John the Baptist. I think they'd probably just called her John. We call him John the Baptist, but they called him John. And when he was born, Luke very specifically tells us that the entire community rallied around Elizabeth to greet this little miracle baby. It's a colorful scene. The family, the friends came around and they rejoiced. Now, I don't know if they threw baby showers in the first century or if that's more of a modern invention, but if they did, Elizabeth racked up. Don't you know that she was opening up those camel skin onesies? Oh, he's gonna look great in it. It's great. John was a miracle baby. And all of the friends and families came around and celebrated. The very next thing John talks, or Luke talks about is Mary's experience and she didn't get that experience. In fact, as soon as she found out she was pregnant, what did she do? What does Luke tell us that she did? Got out of town. She didn't want to stick around. She couldn't stick around. And so she fled down to the hill country of Judea to be with Elizabeth. What a kind gift of God to provide an older woman in her life that would know and understand. And she spent most of her pregnancy, three months of her pregnancy there uh, down with Elizabeth. What a, what a kindness that God gave. But the point is, she had to get out of town. It wasn't easy for her. The second clue of Mary's isolation occurs in Luke's gospel, which is just absolutely heartbreaking to me. It happens in chapter two. This is the famous Christmas chapter. I would imagine on sun, uh, the Christmas morning when you open gifts, you turn to Luke chapter two. It's a famous text. You know the outlines of the story very well. The way that we commonly tell the story though is that Mary and Joseph were riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on a cold and blustery winter night. And they need to find a place to give birth because she's about to give birth. And so they knock on every door, but the innkeepers have to turn them away until they find one compassionate innkeeper who goes, I don't have a room, but I have a stable. You can go sleep with the cows and the sheep. And that's what they did. That's a really great story. Well, the problem is, is that most of that's not in the Bible. <laughs> that actually comes from extra biblical traditions. There were other extra biblical accounts that were written that gives us a lot more flowery details. Luke doesn't go there. He just gives us very simple details about the birth of Jesus. And it's all kind of in one verse. You know what he highlights in that one verse? The fact that they were alone. Luke chapter two, verse seven. This is all we get of the birth of Christ. Maybe not even a night. We don't even know when it happened. But she said, it says, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. Now your imagination can fill in a lot of the blanks and the details about what that night was like. But this is about all we get on the birth of Christ from Luke. They give birth to a son, but then he steps out and he says they put him in a feeding trough. They're presumably in a place where animals feed. Now why would they give birth there? Well, Luke tells us there was no room in the inn. And if you look at your translation in front of you, it probably says they, there was no room for them in the 
inn or the hotel. That's a Greek word, however, kataluma is the Greek word. It's a really unique and interesting word. The word is most commonly referred to as a guest room in a private home. It's interesting. Uh, Luke 22 is actually the word kataluma comes up again. Jesus is going into Jerusalem and he wants to celebrate the Last Supper. You know where they celebrated the Last Supper? The Cataluma, in the upper room. There's actually another word for public hotel. It's interesting that he didn't use it here. He uses it in Luke chapter 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. You remember that story? Where the, uh, the Samaritan bound up the wounds of this man and he put him in a hotel. That word isn't used here. This is a guest room, a private room. There was no room there. Now you have to remember, Joseph was going to his hometown. I would imagine that several of you traveled this last week to your hometown. My uh, dad and stepmom, they live across the street from a comfort inn. I have never been inside that comfort inn. You know why? Because I usually just stay at home. (laughs) They were heading home. They were heading to presumably family and friends in Bethlehem and there was no room for them. Now it's, it's probably too much to speculate why. Maybe they just had company already. But either way, they were denied access to this spare room. And so a lot of the homes had basement caves where they would keep the sheep and the animals below them. And that's where they had baby Jesus. They gave birth to him alone. When you read it in this light, the very next story that Luke turns to is the shepherds, this other group of outcasts, And he said, hey, I want you to come celebrate. And they come in and they get to celebrate this joyful occasion, this joyful birth. Jesus is here. So you have a group of people that are very familiar with exclusion and shame and being an outcast. That's the first Christmas. Over the next four weeks, we're gonna be bombarded with images of the perfect family in the perfect room with the perfect Christmas tree, celebrating the perfect gifts. It's what we long for at Christmas, but let's remember that it didn't happen on the first Christmas. When Jesus came, he isolated this couple from most of their meaningful relationships. But that's not all. The second point that I wanna make this morning is that Jesus came in such a way that was actually extremely dangerous. He put their lives at risk by coming to them. Once he was born, the challenges were just beginning. Now you might say, hold on, time out. He's the son of God. He's perfect. Away in a manger tells us he didn't even cry, right? He, he was perfectly obedient. Now I'm sure there were some perks to raising Jesus, the son of God. And yet, have you ever thought about it this way? When Jesus was born, all of the forces of evil came against him. You see, Satan couldn't do much to Jesus when he was on his eternal throne reigning in the heavens, but when he took on the flesh of a helpless baby, he finally had him in his grasp. And so Satan made it his highest priority to destroy Jesus. The book of Revelation chapter 12, the apostle John is writing this and he actually paints an apocalyptic picture of the birth of Christ. I challenge you at some point during this Advent season to read Revelation 12. It's a stunning picture of the birth of Jesus. And we find that when the woman gives birth to the son, who is there waiting on him? Satan, the great red dragon. What a terrifying image. And he's ready to pounce, but God spared this boy's life. 
Have you ever faced a season of intense spiritual warfare as a family? I would imagine that most faithful Christian homes will go through something like this at some point. Maybe you're going through this right now. It's never pleasant. Just you can feel the oppression and the, and the opposition from our spiritual enemy. I want you to imagine for a moment though, trying to raise an infant. And while you're trying to raise that infant, all of the forces of evil led by Satan himself camped out at your address to make life miserable for you to take that child and to destroy it. That's what Mary and Joseph were called to. Satan's strategy, the way that he played it out was to destroy this baby through the corrupt King Herod. You know this story well. When Herod heard that a baby king was born, he was immediately threatened. He thought, if this baby is rearranging the cosmos and and attracting Eastern visitors, then my own kingdom is threatened. And so he tried to find this baby, but when that plan failed, he just went on a rampage and he killed every two-year-old or less in that region. What a brutal, brutal story. Once again, we're told that they escaped to the middle of the night and what a kind provision for God to allow them to escape. It's wonderful news and and that's about as all we think of when we think of that story. But imagine the strain this put on Joseph and Mary. Matthew says that they fled in the middle of the night. It's never easy to pick up a family and to move a family with an infant, but it was especially difficult here in the first century. It's not like they picked up from New York and went to London and just got a new apartment, a new hotel, kept their same bank accounts. No, they fled through the wilderness, through the desert in the middle of the night to hide out in a foreign land for years. That's what God called them to. Now, we see the kindness of God once again that right before they left on this journey, what did he do? He loaded them down with gold and frankincense and myrrh. Presumably, they lived on this while they were in Egypt. And it's a kindness of God. But either way, Jesus sent this couple into danger. The Christmas story is a beautiful story. And we're gonna sing about it. We're gonna, it it's worthy of our decorations. It's worthy of our, of our songs and our ah, joy. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. But it is not a convenient story. The birth of Jesus came at great personal cost to Joseph and to Mary. God could have chosen a more convenient path for them that would not have upset their lives as much, but the Bible makes it clear that he came in such a way that isolated them and that exposed them to great danger. Can we ask a simple question? Why did they do it? Why did Joseph and Mary do it? Now, that may be not a question that we typically ask of the text. It almost seems like they're just caught up in the drama and they have no choice, but I think they had choices. It seems like they could have gotten out of it. We think that abortion is a modern invention, but it is an evil that's been around for centuries. In fact, Herod had just sponsored a statewide infanticide program to eliminate all the babies in that region. I don't want to be crude here, but she could have made the problem go away. And nobody would have thought anything of it. Joseph could have had the easiest out of all. He could have just kept up with his plan to quietly divorce her. He could have woken up from that vision and gone, I must have eaten something funny last night. I don't know what that angel was, but I can't stick around. The cost is too great. 
I'm just gonna go find somebody else, settle down. Sorry for Mary, but I'm out of here. That was an easy exit strategy. Why? Why did he go through with it? Why did he go, okay, I'm in? There's only one reason, I think. And I want you to listen carefully because this is the point of the message. They willingly walked this difficult journey by faith because they gained Christ. This was the pathway for them to gain Christ. They gave up everything, but they gained Christ. Do you hear that? They gave up their comfort, their security, their career, but they gained Christ. They walked away from their family, but they gained Christ. They watched their dreams crumble, the dreams that they had been planning. They're, they're engaged to be married. Don't you know that they're planning for a future? They watched all of that dream vanish in a second, but they gained Christ, and he was worth it. He was better than anything they had left behind. This is why Mary, I believe, when she went down to be with Elizabeth, was able to celebrate and sing that great, wonderful song. She said, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Her own generation may have rejected her, but she was gaining Christ and she knew what that meant and it was completely worth it to her. So what does that mean for us? I said at the very beginning that the way that Joseph and Mary, the way that Jesus, excuse me, Jesus came into Joseph and Mary's life and shook up their plans is the very same way that he comes into all of our lives. The Christmas story, I believe, is a discipleship story. It's not just like a little prelude to the gospel where we get into Jesus's ministry. It is Jesus's ministry. It is a discipleship narrative. Jesus is better than anything we could possibly imagine. The gift of Christ, the gift of Christmas, the gift of Jesus is better than anything you can dream of, but it comes at a great personal cost to anyone that receives him. This was true for Joseph and Mary who had to give away their dreams. They had a plan, a dream to settle down in a little cottage by the Sea of Galilee and raise their family there and the quietness of life, it, they didn't get that. They embraced shame, they embraced spiritual warfare to be with Christ and it was worth it. It was worth it. This was true for the 12 disciples later on in the gospel accounts. You remember how they were called? They dropped their nets immediately, they kissed their mom and dad on the cheek and they left. Most of these men died early and tragic deaths for the sake of Jesus. And guess what? It was worth it because their reward was Jesus. It's the same for any of us when we receive Jesus. It's worth it, but we have to leave everything else behind. We must leave a life of comfort, a life of pleasure, walk away from the dreams that we've been building in our own minds and take on burdens that don't belong to us. We must leave a life of safety and embrace risks that you can avoid by simply staying home and sitting on your couch. That's the call to discipleship and that's the life that Jesus calls every one of us to. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Take up burdens and follow me. Forever would save his life We'll lose it. What a true statement. I don't know if you've ever meditated on the reality of this. You say no to Jesus because you're gonna build your own dream and, and structure your own family life how you wanna structure it. But guess what? You're gonna have to say goodbye to it one day anyway. The kids are gonna grow up and they're gonna leave. 
And at the very end, you're gonna die and you're gonna leave it all. If you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But on the flip side, Jesus says, if you lose your life, you will gain it because you will receive Jesus and he is worth it. Friends, our world is rapidly changing and I am worried that the American church is not prepared for some of the challenges that are coming our way. I feel like we are weak because we have willingly accepted convenient gospel, a gospel that doesn't really shake up our plans, a gospel that allows us to keep building our own dreams and our own visions and things that we enjoy. Even worse, we've received a message that if, if you receive Jesus, he'll actually help you accomplish your own dreams. That's a convenient message and it sells really well in our, in our world right now, but it's not the gospel. Jesus never said anything like that. The road to salvation is clear. It goes through a cross. The joy of Christmas is received through many, many tears. If we say we follow Jesus, let us pick up our cross, carry burdens, and be exposed to dangers, and to step out in faith where God calls us. It's hard work and it's dangerous work, but friends, it is worth it. It is worth it because that is where we gain Christ. Now, as I close this message, I want to call our church to move toward a very specific application of this text. To be clear, there are hundreds of ways to apply this and Jesus calls each of us to different paths and whether it's this afternoon or many years from now, I pray that Jesus would call you and that you would in faith go where he calls you and go where he leads you. But I want to specifically right now call us to a specific ministry to take on risks and to joyfully come alongside people that are hurting right now. And that is the ministry of adoption. This message actually began as an adoption message, if you can believe it. A few months ago, Mike Kimbrough, who is the leader of our chosen ministry, a good friend of mine came to us asking us to prepare a an adoption message in the month of November because it's National Adoption Month. This is very close to my heart. And so I immediately jumped on. I wanted to to do this with our church. And so as I prayed for guidance, I just felt a very clear sense from the Lord. Look at Joseph. Look, Look at Joseph. He willingly adopted Jesus. So that's where a lot of these thoughts came from. And I went on a crazy journey and you got to experience that journey this morning of what I discovered. Um, Joseph, we just sang that song and it came to pass that Joseph is the noblest of men. I listened to that song about every day just to get that line. Joseph is a quiet character. If you were in a Christmas pageant, he he probably didn't say much. I read a book, uh, Russell Moore. He said that he was in a Christmas pageant when he was a kid and he was a cow and he had more talking lines than Joseph. (laughs) Joseph doesn't really say much. He doesn't record a single word in the Bible. And yet I cannot think of a more brilliant model of faith than Joseph. To be called to adopt this child fully knowing the shame the danger, the risk that it would require of him. And then he just did it. He doesn't say a single word, but he listens to the word and he obeys the word. I wanna be like Joseph. And so I hope this message demonstrates why Christians should be so committed to the ministry of adoption. When Jesus came to our earth, he asked to be adopted. This was part of Joseph and Mary's discipleship. It's not an easy ministry. It's not a convenient ministry but it's worth it. 
It's worth every bit of it. Now, by calling our church to step into this ministry, I do not mean to suggest that everyone should go and get a foster license this afternoon or fly across the ocean to adopt a child. But I do think that we should make it a priority in our church life to move towards children and families that are in great need. We can offer the money, the time, the energy, the work to support the foster care system and all of the workers and all of the families, the children. I love how Betsy prayed for uh, the families that are part of it. They need support and they need church. We need to support them. We can get on our knees to prayerfully engage um, in, in prayers for this ministry. This is spiritual warfare. And I just, again, I'm just so thankful for Betsy's prayer of um, just strength for our church to step into this. That's how, one of the ways that we can support, and when possible, we can open our doors to receive children that need a place. Now, praise the Lord, I do believe that our church is already deeply committed to adoption here. There is a really incredible culture of adoption that I am part of now because I was brought into this culture. When my wife and I came to Alliance Bible Fellowship eight years ago, we got to witness this firsthand. We got to watch our senior pastor walk down this road. We got to watch one of our elders joyfully walk down this road. And we got to see our life group leaders walk down this road. And, and that did something to us. It inspired us and actually compelled our family and many others. We had a College Connection student, former students that left several years ago. They got married, moved to Africa. They adopted a child. We got to see them this morning. Lots of people have been inspired by this. It's compelled our family, my wife and I, to open our home to children in need. On October 2018, my wife and I received two sweet children, you know them as part of our church family now, um, to our home through the foster care system. It stretched us further than we knew we could stretch. But it's been worth it. It's been worth it. Jesus has been there with us uh, the entire time. And he's enriched us. He's, he called us to this journey and he has given us strength along the way. We would not have survived without the kindness of our church family who prayed and encouraged, cooked for us and done a ton of other things for us. We have never experienced such an outpouring of generosity that we experience walking this path. All that to say, I believe that our church is uniquely equipped to meet a great need in our community. The, the support system is here. We have an entire chosen ministry. You'll hear a little bit more about that in just a minute. Um, I think we're equipped to step into this. If you do decide to open your home, I can tell you from personal experience doing that in this church that you will be supported and loved and cared for. But the need is great. This is why I'm specifically calling us to this today. There are over 80 children in the foster care system in our small little mountain community. Just our county alone, there's 80. That's not including the regional counties around us. Uh, Mike Kimbrough told me last week that children are regularly sleeping on the floor of the Department of Social Services. Think about that. When they're taken out of their home, they have no beds for them. They're sleeping on the floor. Church, we have the beds. We have the beds. And if you don't have a bed, we can get you a bed. One of the things I was thinking about this our journey earlier in the message during the worship time. And I, I was just remembering that when we stepped into this, we didn't have a big car, we didn't have a big house. We had a corner of a guest room <laughs> that we had two rooms we could put two beds in. And we had a, a car with a third row that we could pop two, chair, two car seats in. And we said, we can take two. <laughs> it, 
we just went down this road. And again, it's been hard. But the Lord has blessed us every step of the way. We used to pull up to places and to get out of our car, we'd open all four doors and we'd have to pop the back. We had kids flying out everywhere. <laughs> it was worth it. It's worth it. I just want to let you know it's worth it. It's good. It's worth it. These are our children. That's what the Lord just kept telling me in the summer of 2018 as we were going through the paperwork. These are our children. They go to our schools. They play on our streets and they are hurting and they need hope. We lit the candle of hope this morning and we celebrate that hope. There are children in our community that need that hope. They need to know that they're loved and they are loved. Let's show them that love that we have received from Jesus. May our church open our arms wide to receive these children, to receive the families, especially through the foster care, you're dealing with families. May we receive these wonderful people and show them the love of God. This is exactly what he did for us.